so incredibly tall. Who's a man who can block the shots as high as City Hall? Who's a man when he enters a game the other team goes out of control? Who's the greatest basketball player in the game of basketball? Manute. Manute Ball. Oh, Manute. Welcome to Stat Stories, where we take a look at statistical intrigues from across the world of professional sports. I'm Chad Shanks, Director of Marketing for StatMuse, also known as an idiot who once shot an emoji horse. And I am Justin Kabatko, Director of Statistics for StatMuse, and also the person who created BasketballReference.com. So longtime fans of this very young podcast will notice that we use a different opening song. The song you heard to open up is Ken Queter's masterpiece, The Ballad of Minute Bowl. The Philadelphia rocker is one of the many who were inspired by the 7'7", seven 200-pound seven, Sudanese shot blocker, who happens to be tied with George Murison for the tallest player in NBA history. And while his height, lankiness, and overall otherworldly appearance are still what he's remembered for by the uninitiated, his life both in and out of basketball was the stuff of legend and inspiration. So this is episode four, Minute Hope. When he comes to town, he brings in a few more thousand fans. And when he blocks the shots, they end up somewhere near the nosebleed stands. And when he walks across the street, he interrupts the local radio bands. Who is the only NBA player to have killed a lion with just his bare hands? Minute. So the lion story is one of the most well-known regarding Minute Bowl, but it's it's kind of taken on a life of its own, really. Uh, Mr. Queter took some artistic liberties by adding that he did it with his bare hands, but Minute himself is on record admitting to his teammates that he did, in fact, kill a lion growing up. Okay, so, but if there was a story going around about you that said you killed a lion, would you ever deny that story? I was accused of killing a fake horse, so yes, I would, I would deny that story. But Manute, Manute did not, and he was a little proud of it. So he even gave an explanation of it on an interview he did with uh, back in the day with Regis and Kathy Lee. You actually did kill a lion at one yeah, time. Yeah, one time, uh, uh, my uh, my cow milk was uh, killed by the lion. Uh, we all got mad. My cousin and my uncle said we went to look for it. And one time, uh, one day, we find him, you know, sleeping mm -hmm. on a, near a tree. How do you know it's the same line? Oh, well, I don't care. So, <laughs> so by his own admission, Manute revenge kills a lion, which, you know, is not exactly the type of situation faced by your average NBA player growing up, but the type of situation that leads to what is, in my opinion, the greatest NBA quote of all time. Manute Bull is quoted to have once said, "Why should he was asked um, if he's afraid of Michael Jordan coming in and dunking on him. He said, Why should I be afraid of Michael Jordan? I kill Lion. If he comes in, I block his shot. To me, the greatest <laughs> quote maybe ever attributed to an athlete. Um, the only competition in my, in my mind being from his fellow African, Dikembe Mutombo, who, you know, is... Widely known as yelling, who wants to sex Matumbo, but <laughs> it's not exactly about basketball, which is a sport, coincidentally, Manute Bowl 
didn't even play as a young Dinka tribesman, a cowherder growing up in what is now, thanks to his efforts, known as South Sudan. You know, he didn't play basketball until he was a teenager after an American college coach an American college coach noticed the skinny giant, you know, pushed him to, to learn basketball. And so his first time playing the sport didn't exactly go so well, as he explained in this interview from the Best Damn Sports Show, period. And the first time I played basketball, I broke my tooth. So I broke, broke my two tooth. My how'd you, tooth. Hold on, how'd you break your teeth? I dunked and then I was coming down and I, the net, the net grabbed my teeth. So I decide, I decide that I should play basketball and let's, you know, let me, let me see what basketball can do for me. So Manute decided to come to the United States to try to play uh, basketball to better his life for himself and his family. And at one point, I believe he wanted to play for Cleveland State. Who was a, which was and is a Division One program, but I believe there were there were issues getting him eligible, and he ended up going to Bridgeport in Connecticut, which is a Division Two school. So you got this guy, seven foot seven, going to a Division Two school, and even though he'd only been playing basketball for for a few years, he did have a fair amount of talent. And you can kind of predict what would happen when you put a player like that at the Division II level. So in 1984-85, which is the only season he played college ball, he finished the season. He averaged 22.5 points, 13.5 rebounds, and a little over seven blocks per game. Bridgeport was a pretty good team. They finished 26-6. and I think they ended up um, losing in the regional in the D2 tournament. So like they were good. They weren't great. They were good. But what was really interesting about what happened um, with Manute there is that all of a sudden everybody became interested in going to Bridgeport basketball games. So it's a it's a relatively small gym where they play. I forget. I think it's sat like I don't know fifteen hundred, sixteen hundred, something like that. So anyway, the year before Manute comes, they average three hundred and twenty nine fans per game. So. You could very easily count the number of people in the crowd if you were there. But when Minute arrived, their attendance more than quadrupled. So they averaged 1,534 people per game that year he played there. The next year he's gone, they dropped down to 428 per game. And I can remember seeing pictures of the, of the gym at that time. So it's a really small gym, but it's just packed. I mean, it's just packed with people. And they're all there to see this 7-foot-7... Uh, freak of nature, for lack of a better word, that was just, you know, doing things on the court that you had never seen before. Yeah, you don't exactly have a lot of people that meet his description running around Connecticut. So imagine... No, (laughs) no. I imagine people wanted to come come take a look at it. And, you know, one of the things I thought was interesting is that that I didn't know was that Manute Bowl actually became the first African-born player drafted into the NBA. Oh, really? Before, before Elijah won. Like, I thought it was it was Akeem. But in the year before, Manute was drafted in the second round. But um, the only problem, well, this when the draft was a little different than it is now. And it, was, or it wasn't the second, it was a later round, I'm sorry. He was drafted. And, and the, Clipper, um, the Clippers drafted him, right? I think it was the yeah, Clippers. Yeah, the Clippers, whose draft picks we seem to always be talking about. But... Um, he, the only problem was Manute didn't 
register for the draft. Like he didn't sign up for it, but they just drafted him anyway. And so he ended up not leave it to the out. Clippers to do something like that. Yeah. So of course he's like, no, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going. And so Elijah Wan ends up being the first African-born player drafted the following year in eighty, you know, the '84 draft. And then Manute comes out the year, the year after, where he's drafted in the second round by the Washington Bullets. And so Manute came on the scene in his rookie season, and right away was noticed for his signature skill, which of course for a guy that is that tall is. Blocks. Blocks, right. He blocked a ton of shots. So, Manute, um, going in, so before Manute arrived, the, the rookie record in the NBA was 275 blocks by Mark Eaton of the Utah Jazz. And Manute just obliterated that record. He blocked 397 shots. And actually, that's still the rookie record. And it's actually still the second highest block total of all time for any player, not just rookies. So, uh, in terms of per game, he averaged five per game. And once again, a new rookie record, still the rookie record. And he beat the previous record by almost 50%. The previous record was 3.4 blocks per game. And once again, that, that total of five blocks per game is the second highest of all time for any player, regardless of whether or not they're a rookie or whatever. So record-setting season in his rookie season. Another way you can sort of quantify his ability to block shots is looking at his block percentage. So that'll kind of normalize for playing time and pace and all those sorts of things. So just real quick, if you're not familiar, block percentage is a way we try to estimate the percentage of shots, two-point shots, that a player blocks while he is on the floor. So we take out three-point shots because you kind of think about those. Those aren't really opportunities to block shots for post players. So if you just look at opponent two-point shots against while the guy is on the floor... Well, in Manute's rookie season, we estimate that he blocked about 10.6% of all opponent two-point shots while he was on the floor. So about one out of, one out of every 10 opponent two-point shots when Manute was on the floor ended up with him blocking it right back to them, basically. Yeah, that's, that's just insane. And of course, it was, a different, it was a little bit of a different game then. I mean, people weren't, teams weren't hurling up 33-pointers a game like they were now, so there was a lot more shots in that area. But still, one out of... Every 10 shots when he's on the floor, he sends back. I mean, it's just insane. And yeah, it's actually closer to one out of every nine. I was I was off by a little bit. I mean, because it was like he was 10.6%. So that's kind of yeah. that's just crazy. He still has the record for uh, most blocks per 36 minutes by a player um, with 6.4. Um, and the closest and that's person for a career, that, right? That's for a career. Yeah, for a career. Talking. Yeah. For a career. And the closest person to that is um, Hassan Whiteside, who's, who's at 4.5 right now. And, you know, so he still has some time to go up or down with that. But, yeah, Manute just, when he was on the floor, just blocked shots at an insane pace. But the problem was he he couldn't stay on the floor for that long. Well, right. And actually, so in his rookie season, he, he wasn't just sort of this sideshow that the Bullets would trot out under the court for 10 minutes a game. He played uh, over 2,000 minutes that season. Ended up being, though, the only season of his career where he eclipsed 2,000 minutes, and it ended up being a career high. Um, and actually, it was probably the best season of his career, although if you look at it in terms of his overall value, he was really a below-average player, and that's because of his offense, which we'll get to, to in a get to in a little bit. I mean, his offense was offensive. Um, really? Yeah. That's, <laughs> sorry. Bad pun. So... Moving on here, 
we get to his second, third season. There's, you know, he's blocking shots, still, still doing Manute's thing. But let's talk a little bit about his fourth season because this season was like a grand science experiment. So at this point, he's on the Golden State Warriors, and the Golden State Warriors were coached by Don Nelson, who was famous for tinkering with his lineups and playing players at strange positions and playing strange groups of players together. And so, like, for this season for the Warriors, you had Rod Higgins, who was a 6'7 guy, who would usually play small forward. Well, Nelly would often put him at center. And you have Terry Teagle, who was 6'5", and he would play shooting guard and small forward. But Nelly played him mostly a power forward that season. So it was a really odd sort of uh, collection of players that Nelly used. Well, so Bull going into this season, okay, so you're thinking to yourself, there's this giant guy. He's not a three-point shooter. Well, he wasn't. He had taken three shots total from three-point range in his career before this season. Well, Nelly decides, okay, let's take this guy. Let's make him a three-point shooter. Yeah, so, Nelson takes takes one look at him and goes, you know, seven foot seven. You know, let, let's have him just heave the ball up, you know, from 25 feet. Of course. It's genius. And have you have you seen YouTube videos of Manute shooting threes? It was hilarious. I mean, it's it's kind of like a little kid, or a, not a little kid, but if you were going to shoot at like a little kid's Nerf hoop or something, it was just, yeah, it, it was, was like so it, odd to watch. Yeah, it was like his little arms didn't have, well, his long, not his little arms, his, his long, long arms. skinny arms didn't have the muscle to like to push it up. So he kind of <laughs> cocked it behind his head and just just let it fly in. You know, arguably one of the most unnatural looking, you know, sports motions. Like up there with Charles Barkley's golf swing. You know, just seeing seven foot seven minute ball heaving up three pointers. It's it is a thing to see, and so yeah, it just became. Part of, like you said, the the freak show, the sideshow aspect of Manute Bowl. And even before that, when um, the Bullets drafted Muggsy Bogues. And so you had Manute and Muggsy on the same team. You know? Oh, yes. So and there's that iconic picture of them where they're standing beside yeah. each other. And they're holding like three basketballs in between their hands. Like Manute's way up yeah. here and Muggsy's hands way down here. Oh, that's that's a great picture. So you might as well have just had a carnival barker out in front of the, the stadium just saying, step right up, you know, ladies and gentlemen. See the giant man and the small boy. You know, because it, it was, that was the, the kind of aspect that it had going on there. And that kind of took away from... Yeah, we talk about Manute being, you know, an all-time great in shot blockers, and the stats do back that up. But that kind of, when already the height, and then you have Don Nelson, you know, sending him out behind the the three-point line and saying, you know, green light, green light, shoot it, Manute. So yeah, he became that that sideshow act, which took away from the contributions, which, as you were talking about, kind of got got worse as his season went on, his career went on. Yeah, so anyway, just go into the numbers here because I don't think I mentioned these yet. So he, he jacked up 91 threes that year, which doesn't sound like a lot really now, but it was a fair number at the time. It was over one per game. I don't think there were many players at that time taking that many threes per game. And he only made 20 of them. That's 22%. So he's, you know. But he, he, he did have that one game where he hit six and a half. So of his... 20 whatever that he made you know he made most of them in one half where i guess he just caught really it was yeah he had six that he made in one half which at the time was the record for most threes and a half by any player it's since been broken and it was the most um in a game by a center 
total, which um, Sam Perkins broke the following season. So Manute Ball was a prolific three-point shooter for 24 minutes of his career. Yeah, but those the six threes that he made even came, you know, after he was with Don Nelson in the Warriors. So even after oh, so Don, they weren't that season. Okay. So even okay. At, even after Don Nelson was giving him the the green light, you know, he moved on. It's like still, screw it. I'm a new bowl. I'm gonna fire up some threes. Yeah. So I mean, like I said, he shot 22 percent. Not great. Uh, of course, he blocked shots. Blocked 345 shots, and he set the all-time single-season record for block percentage with 10.8 percent. So it's just. Can't shoot threes, but he can still block shots. Now, here's kind of another interesting thing. If you look at all the times a player has blocked 300 shots in the three-point era, okay? You have, so you have Minute, and then you have a bunch of other guys. Those other guys combine to take 42 three-pointers total, all of them together. And Minute took 91 that season. So it's just <laughs> really, really a freaky season. So then the next year is Tim Hardaway's rookie year with the Warriors. And so this was sort of the beginning of the run TMC Warriors. Tim, Mitch, Chris, Tim Hardaway, Mitch Richmond, Chris Mullen. And that was a really fun team to watch. So you, they averaged 116 points per game. One small problem, though. They could not play defense. They are they allowed 119 points per game. They ended up finishing 35 and 47. So Manute's on that team. And... Overall, the team was a really fun offensive team to watch, but Manute that season may have been the worst offensive player in history. So (laughs) offensive rating is a statistic we use to sort of give us an indication of how much a player is doing with his possessions. And we usually express it in terms of points produced per 100 possessions. Well, Manute's offensive rating that year was 759 now, to put that in perspective, average at that time probably would have been something like, I don't know, 101, 102. So he's like 25, 26 points below average. And in fact, in the three-point era, if you look at players who played at least 1,000 minutes, that's the worst offensive rating ever in a season. Yeah, the quantifiably the worst offensive player ever, maybe. But do you know why he had so, so, much, so many troubles scoring the basketball i don't and you kind of teased this earlier you know off off podcast and and so you have me intrigued now i'm just take gonna a guess yeah i'm gonna give these standard answers that aren't gonna be very good uh i would guess that one would be one factor would be that he just picked up the game so late and sort of he just never picked up the offensive skills necessary to be a, a productive NBA player and another factor i think would have been his size because even though he's seven seven he weighed like 200 pounds even, and the, he just couldn't survive in the post with like somebody like Carl Malone beating on him. Yeah, both of those may have something to do with it, but there is a practical reason that I didn't know about when doing our research for this was he had a deformity on his shooting hand. His right hand had a birth defect to where he couldn't um, extend his fingers all the way so his hand was constantly like you know, all of them or just a couple just of a them. couple of the fingers so his hand was like he couldn't straighten the fingers all the way so like we think about it that way yeah, it's easy if you know balls in the air just to swing your arm and swat it away but whenever he had to you know have touch around the rim or something that it got a little a little bit harder to do but i don't know he's still, seven seven he could just drop the ball still, 
But still, I mean, I imagine that that had something to do with it. So I'm I'm trying to make you know a little bit of excuse for him about if you're gonna say he's the worst offensive player ever, which the numbers do do kind of support. But yeah, he did have he did have that going on, which which I didn't know. I, I doubt that's something he really wanted to broadcast to a lot of people. Right, and well, for, for whatever reason, let's just kind of summarize his career now because I think his post career is actually even more interesting than his playing careers but let's summarize yeah, his, let's summarize his career real quick so just going back to the putrid offense you know it, he was probably one of the worst offense players of all time um if you look at guys who played at least 400 games in the nba his career offensive rating was 87.5 that is the worst and if you think about sort of the things that go into offensive rating that a player can do uh he didn't do any of them well his shooting percentages, he finished as a 40% shooter from the floor, a 21% shooter from three, a 56% shooter from the free throw line. So he's not making shots. He never got to the free throw line. Like he played, um, I'm sorry, per 36 minutes, he averaged 1.2 free throw attempts. So he's, even in 36 minutes, he's not even getting two attempts from the line. So he's not helping you there. Assist, right? Another way you can help on an offense is to pass the ball. Once again, looking at players with 400 or more games played, his assist percentage is 1.8%, the worst ever. And then finally, another thing you can do on offense is just don't turn the ball over, don't screw up. Well, Manute turned it over in about one-fifth, a little over one-fifth of, of his plays. So, I mean, just about yeah. everything you can do on offense, he did not do well. Now, of course, you can't qualify, quantify things like screens and, and, and like that, but, you know, he was 200 pounds. I don't think people had trouble getting through his screens. They probably just ran right through him. <laughs> so, you know, he was a. He was just to summarize. He was an above-average defensive player, a very good defensive player, but he was so bad on offense, and he gave back so much on offense. He gave that back what he did on defense and then more. That really, in terms of his career, he, he was a negative player. He was not uh, uh, did not have a positive impact on his team's bottom line. In fact, he probably yeah, hurt. In fact, he probably hurt most of his teams. He was just so bad offensively. Yeah, and even with you know how good he was at blocking shots, with all the things you you mentioned, he he couldn't stay on the floor. You, he was a liability, and so even even with those just mammoth block numbers, he's he's fifteenth in career in blocks. You know, so even players like you know fellow giant Sean Bradley or Ben Wallace ended up you know having more career blocks than him and. He's the only player in NBA history with more career blocks than points. But luckily for Minute, I don't know, luckily, we'll, we'll get into that and see if that's a debate, that his, like you said, his life after basketball was what really made him who he was. And so apart from just being this, this tall, freaky tall guy that everyone likes to gawk at, I mean, he, he had a moment one moment at the end of his career that really just changed everything for him. And so Manute was known as being very, very grumpy in the mornings. So he lived an NBA lifestyle. He went out, was known for drinking. He loved gambling. Um, he would go out and party it up. And everyone said he always wanted to make sure everyone had a good time. And he lived that lifestyle. But then in the next morning, don't mess with him, right? Could, could you very... imagine like walking down the street at 2 a.m. and seeing a drunk seven foot seven minute bowl staggering around? Yeah, yeah, and that would be a sight to see for sure. And he, so they would say that they would back in that day, the teams traveled commercial, 
And so Minute would be walking through the airports in the mornings and people would, you know, come up to him and want a picture and he'd just be like, get away, get away. And they said, you know, he was just had no time for people. So the story goes, he gets a call one early one morning, his phone rings and he answers. He's already upset and he's yelling, you know, why, why are you calling me? I'm sleeping. And it's someone from his home in Sudan who says, while you're sleeping, your people are dying. That gets his attention. So they start telling him more about what's going on in the civil war in his home country of Sudan. And so that call was kind of like the impetus that got him involved and had him going back over to Sudan to where to the point where he got so involved to where he was actually on the battlefields, like helping plan battle strategy for the for this civil war. Now, the, you know, he, was, this was after he had decided to stop playing in the NBA or was this yeah, like at the yeah. very so end of his career? It was like the very, it started at the very end and then just continued okay. for the rest of his life post-basketball. And um, Is that one of the so reasons it, he chose to quit basketball or was it just the fact that nobody his, really wanted him anymore? Both. I mean, it was, it was a combination of things. I think he ended up trying to go to some different lower level leagues at the end of it, but you know, he just, he couldn't play anymore. Right. But once he got involved with everything in the Sudan, he ended up giving his entire fortune to the cause, like everything he had saved from the NBA. Now, he was famously known for making some bad business investments, like investments like a restaurant and stuff wait like that. Wait a second. And wait, wait. You were telling just, me yeah. that a professional athlete made <laughs> yeah, an NBA, bad yeah, An NBA player made bad business decisions. Can you imagine that? That's just, I and, can't believe um, that. Whatever money he had left at the end of it, it all went to the to the cause. It's estimated that he gave over three million in support to the the rebels, the South you know Sudan rebels. And he even became a political advocate, going to using his celebrity to go speak to the Pentagon to try to get them to be worried about the situation. And so he even tells a story speaking to the Pentagon about warning the U.S. of the dangers of a certain individual who is active in that area of Africa, telling them that you might want to do something about this guy because he's pretty dangerous. So who do you have any idea who Manute Bull warned the Pentagon about? What particular person he... There was a person, Manute Bull, spoke to the Pentagon and warned them, like, this guy is trouble, you need to do something about it. I have no clue. Osama bin Laden. Really? Manute Bull warned the Pentagon about Osama bin Laden. Now, did, did he Osama was, he have, his, have his uh, fingers in the pie at Sudan, for lack of a yeah, better Yeah, he was, he was active in the Sudan, and part of the thing going on with the Civil War, it was, um, it was religious, with the northern Sudan being Muslim-controlled and southern Sudan being um, you know mostly Christian and a mixture okay. of other things. And so... That's the battle was waging then, and you know, even before it's become something that we we know all too much about today, it was happening in Sudan back then. And so the story goes that when Manute Bol saw what was happening on September 11th, that he just lost it and was yelling and saying, "You know, I warned them. I warned them. Why didn't they? Yeah. Why didn't they do anything about this?" But you know, his his advocacy got to the point to where, you know, they in Sudan, the opposition saw him as a threat and, you know, were kicking him out of the country. So he ends up coming back to the, the U.S. as a refugee. You know, he leaves and goes back to Sudan, you know, as a hero and then has to come crawling back to the U.S. seeking seeking asylum and seeking seeking help. And so he's penniless. 
but he take he he's still working for the cause. So he takes on all these demeaning gigs, playing off of his celebrity. Like yeah, I remember some. He's like a boxing match, right? Wasn't he in a boxing? Yeah, match? he did. So he did celebrity boxing where he fought uh, William the Refrigerator Perry in one of the most unwatchable, horrible events that was ever put on TV. That was like also, a cartoon. I mean, that would be like just you know the, you have these two comically sized athletes fighting each other that's like yeah refrigerator just sat there doing you couldn't do anything because if you got within four feet of him his arms were just going to pop you in the face it was (laughs) it was unwatchable but the whole time during that broadcast which you can find on youtube and we'll um we'll embed the clip on our blog for anyone who's listening on on itunes or soundcloud or tune in or one of the other places you can watch it and see um the whole time it says that Manute's winnings are going to help in the Sudan. And so he also took things where he was the world's tallest jockey. So they had him in a horse race, like be uh, put on the jockey thing and like take pictures with the tiny little jockeys. And then did he the mount the horse without any need of uh, like a step stool or anything like that? <laughs> I don't know. I couldn't find the video of it. I just saw the pictures and um, where he was the world's tallest hockey player, where like minor league hockey had him come in and try to play which he could do a half before his um said the skates hurt his ankles and so like the problem was during all of this like his body is just giving out on him he's um arthritis is starting to cripple him and he's still all the money that he's making over here he's he's sending back and um because things just keep getting worse and worse and he estimated that 250 of his own family members were either killed or um, sold into slavery or starved to death during the whole thing. So he was, everything he was doing was trying to save his family. And of course, they have large families back then. He tells a story um, that his grandfather had like 57 wives and he had he had like 80 something children and that they would go and like be out in the village or wherever and they would meet people and they'd say oh they would say they're introduce themselves and have the name bowl and like oh well we're related you know that he wouldn't even they wouldn't even know who all his family was but so he's still trying to do all this even more tragedy strikes when he's in a taxi cab and driver is drunk and has a wreck and turns it over breaks minute bowl's neck his neck is broken. Thankfully, he wasn't like paralyzed, but you know, still a broken neck that he had to recover from, and he eventually healed. So he had that. He had arthritis crippling him, but he's still going back to the Sudan. So, so at this point, up, I mean, it just it hurts him just to get up and walk around. I mean, he's he's just yeah, he's he's penniless. He's living in a hut in the Sudan, like a dirt hut. You know, this guy that was this NBA superstar for. Well, however you want to interpret second, that term. however you want to interpret that term if if you if you just interpret that term based on you know people knowing who you are and making Pop icon, money maybe. he had endorsements and things like that you know and then he he made millions of dollars he's living in a hut go, campaigning you know towards the end for people that he wanted politicians or people that were going to help the independence movement in South Sudan but he was so crippled and so in pain that people had to carry him from place to place. It got to where he couldn't even walk. And so they would carry Manute Bowl and sit him under a tree and people would gather around and hear him speak and where he would give this this big charge to the people, rallying telling them to rally behind these people and rally for independence and stuff like that. And he was he was a god. And he'd tell the story about the um the lost boys, they're known as the Sudanese refugees who ended up making it to the U.S. And that oh yeah, I read I read a book about that. 
That's yeah, and that he donated so much money and time, and was seen as he was seen as a god by them, you know, helping them. And so all of this eventually leads to success. Like the South Sudan wins their independence, and they're eventually recognized as a new country. But Manute Bol never gets to see it because in 2010 he died at age 47 in a Virginia hospital of kidney failure, and his one of his close friends who was there with him quotes and one of the last things Manute Bol said was, "I did it, I did it." So according to an article written by Jordan Kahn in Atavist Magazine, which is a phenomenal all-encompassing piece on Manute Bowl that we'll link to in the blog that if you're remotely interested in what we're talking about, please read it. It's, it's very, very good. But he says in that story that Manute Bowl reportedly told one of his closest friends towards the end when they were asking him about the lion story, like how did it happen, you know, give us details and stuff like that. And Manute says, I uh, just, I made it up. That he finally admitted towards the end Ah, so I was right. Yeah, see, like I said, I mean, I why, would, why would you deny at the t- you know why would you deny the story that you had killed a lion? I knew he was a lion. Yeah, and so after everything that I've learned about him, that 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 makes complete sense. He he did all these things where he he was a hero for his country. He gave everything, and you can argue even his life because he wasn't taking care of himself and he, he was campaigning and going around instead of instead of looking after his own health but he I mean he was a flawed hero he was like you said he loved to drink he loved to gamble he got into issues with domestic violence he had that temper but just all these things make him all the more fascinating to me he, he wasn't this saint he was a very flawed human being but still was able to use his life to for something for something better for something more for other people and so even now we have there's a story bleacher report did that his one of his sons is carrying on his his legacy he has a 15 year old 15 year old at the time of the video um son who's seven foot four but they say you know plays kind of like kevin durant has like an inside outside game and his, son, his son's name is bowl bowl so they just just named him Bowl Bowl, which you know seems kind of strange to us because we have John Johnsons and Tom Thompsons and stuff. But a name a name was very important to them, and Manute's name itself actually means a special blessing, and it's a a name in his country that was given to people given to children who came after a loss. So his parents had had lost you know children before you know miscarriages and stuff before eventually he was born. And the story goes that Manute wanted to name his firstborn son after himself, name him Manute Bolt. But they were like, but you haven't, you haven't lost anyone. Like your, your Sudanese people, you know, would see that as offensive. You can't give them that name. And Manute says, it'll be all right. I'm going to die young anyway. Wow. Yeah, and you know, you're, you're just going back to what you were saying about his, you know, he's a guy who, who did all these good deeds and yet still had some, some very serious flaws. I mean, that, there's actually sort of as a, parallel to his basketball career right where he's this historic shot blocker he's he's doing things on the basketball court that we've never seen before you know all-time leader in block percentage over 10 percent but just he had this this fatal flaw and that was that he was just a zero on offense he couldn't do anything on the offensive end of the floor that would help his team and 
in the end, I think that's what what caused his career to be. I don't want to say short. I mean, when you play over 400 games in the NBA, that's not a short career. But for a guy his size who had such a signature ability, such you know, like I just said, he he was he was an he was a historic shot blocker, and yet because of those fatal flaws on offense, he just really couldn't ever ever gain traction with the team. Yeah, and that kind of brings to the the, the ultimate question of you know what is Manute Bowles' legacy? You know, not just within the NBA, but as a as a human being. And it seems you know the latter has far out outweighed the former. You know, with what he was able to do, and um, you see. His funeral was televised, and um, so you can go back and see clips from that. And at his funeral, uh, one of his uncles just goes on saying that we remember him for his deeds, you know, and that Manute was a symbol of, of unity and reconciliation to the point they had some of his old teammates there. Even um, you can see Chris Mullen is in the in the audience, and um, one of Manute Bowles, another one of Manute Bowles' sons is named Chris who he named after Chris Mullen, his good friend. So yeah, really? Bowl, 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 Chris Bowl. Manute Bowl Jr., Chris Bowl. <laughs> so, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, and um, so it's to the point to where his basketball career doesn't even matter. You know, it was just, it was a, a platform to do to do these other great things. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely fighting the good fight to stop genocide and all those other horrible things, that definitely trumps blocking a player's shot. It's a little bit more important than blocking shots. So to me, I, Manute Bowl is arguably the most fascinating NBA player ever just because of the stat things that we talked about and then more so for his life. I mean, name a comparison. Name one player that even compares to everything that he that he went through. I, I mean, I, you can think of comparisons for certain certain aspects, but yeah, Manute Bowl. So let's close. I want to close with a quote from Charles Barkley, who played against him and played with him in Philadelphia. And Charles Barkley, you know, not always the most um, most complimenting of people. You know, isn't isn't really known for the nice things he says about people. But Charles Barkley, in a quote about Manute Bowl, says, "If everyone in the world was a Manute Bowl, it's a world I'd want to live in." So with that, we say thank you for listening to this episode of Stat Stories. Again, if you listened on, download on iTunes or SoundCloud or somewhere else, please check our blog at blog.statmuse.com, and we're going to embed some of these uh, StatMuse searches featuring minute stats and things like that, and some of these videos that we've that we've discussed. So you definitely want to check those out. Please join us for our next episode of Stat Stories, where we're going to be continuing with the Star Wars theme with a very special guest, our first guest who we're really excited to have on. So be sure and tune in. Subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.